So, Mark. Yes. We love the love. We love the love. A year ago, we started this episode that way, but now it's the name of the show. Oh, I totally forgot about that. So did I until I went back to last year's script. (laughs) Wow. What a year we've lived. It's been a heck of a year, and we've had a lot of love to love in movies, too. Yeah, 2018 brought a lot of love to the world. You bet it did. And some other horrible things, too. But lots of love. Yes. It was a mixed bag. True. So, of course, next Sunday is the Oscars, the Academy Awards. The 90... (laughs) 91st, I think? I think so. I think last year was 90. It was like a big deal, but only kind of. Yes, the 91st Academy Awards. Why do I have that at the tip of my fingers? You should not. I'm a monster. Anyway, as always, we are going to start this episode by not talking about the Oscars, specifically by talking about our favorite non-nominated romances of 2018. Okay. So what have you brought for us? Uh, I think a very strong contender is Elsie Fisher's character and Sauce Boy in 8th grade. This was also my pick. That is a solid romance. He is such a nice little boy. When they are on that, like, date at his house, I cackled for that entire scene. It was so funny. He's got the electric candles on the table, like, plugged in. He's got all the sauces laid out in a big array. Yeah, he bought one packet of every sauce for her, because he didn't know which one she would want. It's so funny. That was... But even, like, the first time they meet when he, like, comes up in the pool wearing the giant goggles... Uh, that one shot tells you everything you need to know about this kid, too. It's so funny. With the goggles. Yeah, that was my pick. That was my real pick. I had a bunch of joke picks. What were some of your joke picks? Uh, Robin Hood? Oh, yes. A movie that really exists. There was a Robin Hood adaptation in 2018. We know you didn't see it, because we were pretty much the only ones who did. It was, honestly... Kind of a masterpiece? (laughs) No, but it was fun to watch. That's what I meant. In the words of Will, there's a non-zero amount of t-shirts in this movie set in medieval England. And, well, questionable, because Nottingham might also be its own country. It's never clear. It's just built into the base of a giant coal mountain. That seems to be all mine, and no more mountain. I like all the people who live in the mine. Yeah, and that they're different from the people that live in Nottingham. Right, the mine is outside the jurisdiction of Nottingham. Marion is by far the worst offender, in that she always has, like, perfect makeup and anachronistic dresses, but has, like, a little bit of dirt on her face. Yeah, and a lot of cleavage. There's a lot of cleavage in that movie. It starts with her wearing a veil, but also her dress is, like, fully open. Well, you know, you gotta be modest, but you've also gotta... Because she's a thief in that scene, so she's gotta distract him. Oh my god. I also had Peter Rabbit on here, because it's obvious that James Corden wants to get with Rose Byrne. Did that come out this year? That was, like, last March. Oh god, that feels so long ago. Peter Rabbit, like, wants to have sex with everybody in that movie. And he thinks he's going to. He's, like, very cocky and very horny. Yeah. That movie is so weird. That was a truly bizarre Why movie. is this rabbit jealous of a woman falling in love with another human? Because he's in love with Rose Byrne. It's so weird. It's very strange. Also, speaking of weird, also on my list was The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, a movie that, believe it or not, actually exists uh don't forget elastigirl and the screenslayer i mean that's just the best yeah screenslaver 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 uh that romance that movie rules caused a critic to (laughs) if you haven't read the new yorker i can't finish that sentence if you haven't read the new yorker review of incredibles 2 
It is truly appalling. <laughs> it's horrifying. Where the guy is basically just like, yeah, seeing Elastigirl on screen made me want to, like, jerk off in my seat. It was disgusting. And it's the kind of thing where, like, on the one hand, like, Elastigirl does look great in the movie. But on the other hand... It's wholly inappropriate. So inappropriate. No one needs to know that. Yeah. Save that for your weird incognito mode Google searches. <laughs> I don't even want to know what's out there. Oh, it's probably disgusting. I'm sure it's horrifying. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else. I mean, there's a lot of good romances in the movies we're going to talk about. Yeah, so should we just move into those? Yeah. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast where we dig deep into these urgent matters, the pressing issues, the titanic queries that our world needs to deal with. Like, for example... Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It does not matter if the romance is the main plot or a one-scene flirtation or if we did not see the movie. Either way, we are going to dig in and see what's there. This week, of course, we are celebrating the biggest and this year weirdest event in movies, the Oscars. What is happening with the Oscars? So I mentioned this on a previous episode but I kind of like Mark Harris's argument where he was saying that the weirdo best picture slate we got suggests that the Oscars diversification efforts are working because like every constituency is represented. Yeah. Including like old boring people. But also beyond that, this episode is coming out or not coming out, but being recorded a day after they announced that they're presenting cinematography and editing and then makeup and hair design and then live action short during the commercial breaks two of which are intrinsically necessary to make a movie right the things that make movies different from other art forms yeah it's mind-boggling it's very dumb but i mean the thing is what people don't understand is that audiences have been tuning out from the oscars not because audiences are tuning out from all live television it's because they're sick of looking at editors and if you just tell the audience look you won't have to hear about a bunch of editors. Then they'll say, oh my, let me come and watch this on Sunday night. In what world does ABC think that by announcing that they're removing these four things, more people will watch? What's truly incredible is one of the heads of programming at ABC was talking about how like, yeah, you know, the buzz around the Oscars is bigger than ever. All the uncertainty has people really interested. It's like, yeah, all the uncertainty has people being like, is it going to be terrible? And answering it with, yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be awful. And I'm gonna watch it. Oh, yeah, of course. I just can't understand how someone could look at, say, last year's Oscars and say, we need to make this shorter. Let's cut some awards. As opposed to, let's cut Army Hammer shooting hot dogs at people who are just trying to watch A Wrinkle in Time. I forgot about that. The Oscars are weird, man. They're very weird. I, though, am of the opinion that if we're gonna change the Oscars' runtime, they should be longer. I want more montages. And, you know... Show us the shorts. Pad an extra hour and a half into the thing and I'll watch all the shorts. At one point they talked about not having every song performed at the Oscars. And that was insane to me because that is one of the most popular parts. Yeah, it's a great part of the whole thing. Remember when St. Vincent played at the Oscars last year? I do. (laughs) I remember when the Oscars performance of Remember Me did not end with a bell crushing someone and I've never recovered. Yeah, someone didn't die last year's Oscars and that's sad. I'm on the record on this show having said, 
every musical performance on the Oscars should end with a belt crushing a person. <laughs> Sacrifice one famous artist every year. It would get people to tune in. ABC, hit me up. That would be something to tune in, is if every year there was one, uh, they could phrase it as assisted suicide and film in Oregon. I mean, at some point, it's like kind of the Hunger Games, but I still like it. Um, so besides murder, other weird things will happen at this year's Oscars, including no host, which, curious. LOL. I can't believe that no one said yes. There's so many people that I would love to watch host the Oscars, and I assume that they were all asked, and I think everyone just said no. The correct Oscars host is The Rock. Uh, Maya Rudolph, also one of my top choices. She would be cool. My argument for The Rock is the man looks good in a tux. He likes doing song and dance kind of stuff. He is charming and he is wildly popular. Yeah, that would be something that could probably draw people in. Right. He's one of the few um, stars we have left where people will see a movie because The Rock is in it. I mean, we saw Skyscraper this year. We did. We also saw Rampage. We need to be stopped. It's a problem that we saw both of those movies. You know, I don't regret it. I don't either, obviously. But boy, were they both garbage. Yeah, they were bad. So for this episode, we're going to follow our annual tradition in our Oscars extravaganza, where instead of picking one Best Picture nominee and digging into its romance, we're going to skim the surface of all eight of them. We're going to do a lightning round through each nominee, talk about the romance, and then place their believability on our 10-point scale. And we'll probably talk about some other stuff because this is a podcast, so we can't stay on topic. Nope. It's a law. It's also what any experience talking to me will in real life is like. We can't be stopped just because we have a script, in quotes, a goal. I'm doing air quotes just for Will's benefit. Once upon a time, these were pretty heavily scripted, and now it's just kind of like, talk about a thing. Also, he he will often leave the title of last week's movie in the script. Well, yeah, I mean, we all know what we're talking about. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) All right, so we've got to do our extravaganza, right? Yes. You ready? I'm ready. All right, you're starting us off with Black Panther. I, Zuri, son of Badu, give to you Prince T'Challa, the Black Panther. All right, so the first in our list alphabetically is also the first movie on this list to have come out last year. Came out last February. A year ago. And Black Panther is, of course, the story of the Marvel Comics character, King T'Challa. He's the ruler of a fictional Afrofuturist kingdom, Wakanda. And as far as the romance goes, at the start of the movie, T'Challa is dropping into a jungle somewhere else in Africa. In my brain, it's Nigeria, but I don't think that's right. And he's dropping in to pull Nakia, played by Lupita Nyong'o, out of this caravan where it looks like she's captured, but actually she's undercover to free women who are being trafficked by bad dudes. Because Nakia is really cool. She has left Wakanda because she's sick of their isolationist policies and thinks that they ought to be using their power and their wealth to help people around the world. Yeah, it's a pretty thinly veiled reference to Boko Haram. Yes, exactly. And so T'Challa talks to her about how like he had asked her to be with him they had dated in the past and she's like no i don't want to be part of this isolationist deal but she agrees to go back to wakanda for his dad's funeral then we see them interact some they don't actually interact a ton during the movie but like when he gets thrown off a waterfall by michael b jordan she's really sad and she helps to organize the resistance in wakanda against michael b jordan's eric killmonger and then in the final battle she fights and she's really cool and then towards the end of the movie she kind of agrees 
to date T'Challa again, but kind of not. She's playing a little hard to get, but she's glad that he's no longer an isolationist. Yeah, this one doesn't have a lot of actual contact between the romantic leads. But the performances are so good that you get it with just a little bit. Yeah, it's also one of the least, like, romancy endings. Right, the movie's not a romance, and there is almost, to compare it to other Marvel movies that we've talked about, almost like Iron Man, there's not a, like, we're together at the end of the movie. It's just like, we're in a good place, and I think you're cute, and you think I'm cute, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, so obviously there will be more, because Marvel can't be stopped, and we'll find out what happens. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. More great roles for Lupita Nyong'o where we see her face. Yeah. That said, I know Lupita Nyong'o has gotten a lot of roles where we don't see her face since she won that Oscar, but you're never going to hear me say anything bad about Maz Kanata. No. And I mean, she's in Us, which not only has Lupita Nyong'o's face, it has two Lupita Nyong'o's faces. Okay. That movie's going to be dope, right? I might be too scared. And it's like, I want to go out and support Jordan Peele because Get Out was so good, but this one looks so much scarier. When she laughs at the end of that trailer, I don't like it. It's so creepy. It's so scary. I'm so on board with I'm us. so scared. Uh, I'm feeling really good about movies in 2019 so far. Yeah. We I, saw Serenity. Oh, God. I saw The Kid Who Would Be King, which is like a nice kids movie i think we need to point out that between weekend two and weekend three of serenity box office dropped 92 percent. this movie is a cataclysm it's a disaster it is a absolute disaster of a film hyped about it i feel like i'm gonna see that movie at least like three more times in my lifetime i think i will be a solid zero more times i just desperately want other people to see it and i know that i will have to make them yeah but you can always just like not pay attention I don't think I think I'll pay attention. That movie is so weird. It's so funny. All right, so where do you think we should rate Black Panther's romance? This one's kind of harder to rate because it's not like it's not a, a complete real, relationship yeah. at the end. There's just kind of flirtation throughout it. Yeah, but it's believable enough, but I feel like because it's, you know, barely a romance that probably dings at a few points. All right. So may like a eight, seven or an eight. I'm an eight. It's on also this. been so long since I watched this movie. Full I disclosure. It last March. Yeah, I don't think I've watched it since probably February. I gotta get back on that. A year ago. So my guess is not. Don't hold me to it. So we're we're kind of dropping a little bit because we don't totally remember. Yeah. All right. So eight for Black Panther. Sure. All right. Now you though just watched Black Klansman this week. My mouth to God's ears. I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. I did. It was the last of the seven Oscar movies that I watched. We'll get to that. And I thought it was really fun. I enjoyed it. Adam Driver is hot. That is my official stance on that position. He's apparently really good in the, the report, the movie about the 9-11 commission that premiered at Sundance a couple weeks ago. Oh, he's a good actor. Hot take, but I'm into it. Yeah. So it's based off of a true story of the first black policeman, police officer. Detective. Yeah. In Colorado Springs. And he kind of undertakes it on himself to expose the local Ku Klux Klan by talking on the phone. And so then because he's black, he needs a white person to play him in actual interactions. And this includes him being on the phone with David Duke, played by Topher Grace. Who's really good. Who's really good in this. And so, you know, at the end, everything gets buried, and it's very sad, and everything is terrible. We get a montage of Charlottesville, 
and it was a big bummer at the end, not gonna lie. Yeah, I will say, I think the movie cheats a little bit with the Charlottesville yeah. montage. Or I think it manages to get a, like, deep and serious resonance through that that it doesn't really earn otherwise. Yeah, because it's kind of fun otherwise. Like, it's got a lot of 60s, there's a Soul Train dance sequence... Which is the second interaction we get between the romantic coupling in this film. Which, as he's working for the police, Ron Stallworth starts dating the leader of the black student union at the local college, who is very anti-police because it's the 70s. And she's a black power supporter who invites Kwame Touré to give a speech, which is where they first meet. And it's very... It's interesting. The romance is one of the things that I liked this movie, but I did not love it. And the romance is one of the things that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Where I don't know the true story of this element of this whole narrative. I don't know if we do either. If they made up a full character. Which is possible. I just don't know what all is real and what's not. Yeah. And I just felt like their relationship was kind of weird. I didn't love... She's like harassed by a cop pretty aggressively and then immediately john david washington as ron stallworth is like trying to pick her up and she's like kind of into it and it felt kind of like whiplash for that character yeah but she doesn't know he's a cop at that point she doesn't find out he's a cop till later in the movie right but even i don't know i had a hard time with her making that jump in those moments yeah i mean i think it helps that she doesn't know that he's a cop and they have disagreements they like actually discuss it you know, he's more on the side of we should work from the inside to change it. She's like, the only way to change things is from outside action. And they have that debate throughout the whole movie. But it's not until he tells her to avoid this event because the KKK is planning on planting a bomb there that she finds out he's a detective. And that doesn't come till they've been dating for a while now. Right, which is also kind of an issue. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, definitely not going to be one of my top rated. Yeah, like I said, I... Wanted to like the movie, and there's a lot I enjoyed. I thought Topher Grace is a lot of fun. Yeah. I think Driver and John David Washington are really good in it, too. I just felt like it thought it was sometimes making bigger points than it actually was. Not on, like, a Vice level. We're going to talk about Vice. Yeah. But, like I said, for example, the the Charlottesville montage at the end, which I know was not originally part of it because that happened, like, the day after they finished shooting it. And right. Spike Lee was like, well, we're putting this in the movie. And then also... Like, the Alec Baldwin bit at the beginning, I think, sets up such a weird movie that it never engages with again. That was odd. The Alec Baldwin thing is strange. It is odd. Also, shout out to Alec Baldwin, who is in two movies on this list. Barely. Oh, yeah, he, he is. is. also in Star is Born. As himself. Right. For two seconds. Ladies and gentlemen, Ali. Yep. That's so weird. He must have just been walking by on set. Yeah, I have no idea what was going on there. Yeah, how did that happen? Who even knows? Do you think that Saturday Night Live really has, like, a trash can full of beers just under the bleachers? I would fully buy that. It's one of the things where I'm like, that's completely ridiculous, but also probably true. Yeah, that feels accurate. Also, Harry Belafonte is in Black Klansman, I just remembered. He's good in it. He is very good. He is 91 now. Good for him. Yeah. He's really good in it. I mean, he's recounting the lynching of Jesse Washington for 
the Black Student Union of Colorado College, and he delivers it very well. Yeah. He plays a friend of Jesse Washington who witnessed it happen, and it was a very moving scene. That's a good scene. Yeah. There's the, like, double layers of that scene where there are, like, transparent heads going by. Yeah. I thought was a little odd. Yeah, but it's interspersed with the KKK watching Birth of a Nation, which they cut back and forth between it, but... Harry Belafonte's monologue is over the showing of Birth of a Nation, which he references in his speech because Birth of a Nation helps rebirth the Ku Klux Klan. In the 19-teens, In the 19-teens. So I enjoyed that part of the film. Birth of a Nation is a movie that's, like, interesting to watch. Obviously repulsive in its politics. It's also crazy long. (laughs) Yeah. People did not have much going on in their life at the time. (laughs) I suppose so. (laughs) Busy not yet being in World War One. Yeah. I mean, when you hear that operas are four hours long, it's just like, well, what else are you going to do? If you're rich enough to afford going to the opera in the 1700s, you're rich enough to have a lot of free time. Yeah. So where would you rate Black Klansmen? (sighs) I'm going to go with like a seven because in theory, it's based off a true story. So it definitely has that going for it. I think I'm a six on this one. I think that the relationship is pretty dicey in a couple of different ways. Like I said, I'm not convinced by the emotional swing there. And then at the end of the movie, when they like use her to pin that cop. Yeah. The, like, they use her to pin the racist cop also feels pretty implausible to me. I think it's a movie that wants to wrap things up really neatly in a lot of, lot of ways. They're like, at the end of the movie, like, ah, we even got the racist cop down. I d- we blew up the clan, and we sure stuck it to David Duke over the phone. I really didn't like that they, like, busted the racist cop. Yeah. It felt kind of... It's too neat. It's too neat, because I f- feel like a movie like this should kind of remind you that racist cops are still you know a thing which it then tries to do by putting in the charlottesville thing yeah which, like i said feels like artificial stakes at the end I right mean, it's literally a real thing they're using real footage but it's so disconnected from the rest of the movie right so it was an interesting movie yeah i mean here's the thing spike i enjoyed is, it spike lee is always interesting even if it doesn't quite click for you yeah But, you know, definitely not my top choice for Best Picture this year. No, not at all. But your top choice is coming up right now, yeah? Um, not right now. Oh, I was looking. It's a joke because, boy, am I angry about the next movie. This is the one movie neither of us watched. Yeah, and I mean, I didn't see it in theaters. And then the Atlantic article came out, and then I really didn't want to see it in theaters. So somehow, we're talking about Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, and then there's the operatic section. You're going to love it. The operatic section. I know, it's, it sounds crazy, I love it, but I, I don't know, it. it could be a flop, it could work. I love it. Somehow, I've been bamboozled by people not knowing all the Brian Singer stuff. Yeah. I do not work in the film industry, and I've known about it. For, like, five years. Yeah, I mean, Difficult People made a joke about it in, like, their first season. I remember becoming aware of it around the time X-Men Days of Future Past came out. When some people in the nerd community were writing, like, maybe we shouldn't have Brian Singer make these movies anymore. Yeah, I, you know, wasn't really paying that much attention to the whole film because I'd already decided that its treatment of the subject character was odd. And also, they gave him AIDS, like seven years before real life right so we have not seen bohemian rhapsody again yeah 
One of the things that I think really turned us both off of it is that it creates drama out of manufactured events or events rearranged so ridiculously as to become wildly inaccurate. So while by all accounts the Live Aid stuff is really well done, the stuff to get there is almost criminally inaccurate. Where you don't walk away from the movie really knowing that much about Freddie Mercury and is what I heard. knowing less. Yeah, because you know wrong things. Right, so it creates a lot of drama about him being diagnosed with AIDS prior to Live Aid, which is not true. It creates drama out of him leaving the band and going solo beforehand, which is not true. It's very strange, the choices they made there. It's also weird, though, because this movie was wildly successful. Crazy successful. Truly astonishing. And I think that a lot of people like in the film nerd community have been kind of blind to that because I think a lot of us wrote this movie off even before it opened because of the years and years of behind the scenes drama of going through multiple directors and multiple stars in the Freddie Mercury role. And then once it was going on, knowing about Brian Singer getting fired from the movie for not showing up on set and not for being a horrible abuser of teenage boys. And now it's this weird thing where the movie is getting nominated for all these awards, but nobody is talking about Brian Singer when they're talking about the movie. Right. And it's very apparent that everyone is purposefully not addressing it. avoiding it, it. yeah. And it's uncomfortable even more because of that. I did hear a strange argument on Little Gold Men where they were saying maybe people are, like, recognizing Bohemian Rhapsody for, say, editing even though the editing, like there was a clip that went viral on Twitter of its terrible editing. And maybe what people are feeling is like, look, they probably had a lot of crap to deal with because Brian Singer was such a shoddy director, like barely on set, that it's like impressive they made a passable movie out of it. Yeah. But we have not seen it. It's just one of those things that feels really distasteful in a lot of ways. Yeah. From the personality of the director to its treatment of the history. I really don't want anything to do with it. No, I just have absolutely no desire to watch it. If I want to watch the Live Aid concert, the entire original Queen Live Aid concert is on YouTube. Yeah, so, you Go know, check that out. It's there. <laughs> you can still watch it. So we will not be rating Bohemian Rhapsody. Nope. Because we did not see it. Nope. And we will never see it. Nope. Great. Moving on to one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, Green Book? No. We're talking about the favorite. You have become close to Abigail. She's been a dear, yes. It's such a shame, but I've had to dismiss her for theft. She's a liar and a thief. I heard you. She's my servant. She's not dismissed. I've made her my maid of the bedchamber. Did you not hear what I said? Yes, you regard her as a liar and a thief. Yes. I do not, obviously. Favorite. Favorite. Which, was it written directly for me? Maybe. Possibly. Possibly. You are, of course, famously a big fan of the fisheye lens. I mean, I don't dislike it, but I am a huge fan of Olivia Coleman and also the history of Queen Anne because she's a very interesting person. Yeah, she's a weirdo. Yeah. You're also a big fan of rabbit movies last year. You saw Peter Rabbit. You saw The Favorite. There was one other. Well, we've got Us coming out. Oh, there are Us a lot of rabbits coming out. Yeah. It's a big era for rabbits, guys. This, this podcast is an Us fan podcast at this point. Or are we just really into rabbits? It can be both. It's both. Are you a Sing Street guy? Have I made you watch Sing Street? Yeah. Are there rabbits in that too? Yeah. One of the kids, Eamon, the guy who has all the instruments because his dad's in a band, he has all these pet rabbits and it's like the funniest understated running joke throughout the movie where 
at one point, like, the main kid goes over to his house to write a song, knocks on the door. Eamon answers his door, and he's like, what are you doing? And the guy goes, nothing, just rabbit stuff. And then anytime you see him, like, all the artwork in the houses of rabbits, he's got rabbits all over his bed and stuff. Yes, but none of those rabbits are a stand-in for either a miscarriage or dead child. That we know of. That we know of. Fair. But the favorite is the story of Queen Anne and two women who compete to be the favorite, which, you know, is code slang for lesbian lover who uses that position to gain authority. Right. Um, The natural position that exists in all governments. Yeah. Well, basically, in all monarchies, there are a lot of favorites throughout English history. Oh, yeah. Um, So Olivia Coleman stars as Queen Anne and Rachel Weisz gives a masterful performance as Sarah Churchill, first Duchess of Marlborough. And the thing is, she wouldn't even have to give a masterful performance. She could just look awesome in that outfit she's wearing, the one with the pants, like her riding suit. Oh, yeah. All of her different masculine outfits are incredible. They're really excellent. And so she's been friends with Queen Anne since they were children, and they've been close for long enough that Sarah Churchill essentially is running the government at the start of the movie. Queen Anne is more than a little mad at this point. Yeah, so Queen Anne, historically, we know that she had gout. She suffered with reproductive issues that plagued her mental health. But another thing I was reading is a lot of what we know of Queen Anne, we base off of the memoirs of the Duchess of Marlborough, who had a big axe to grind. And so a lot of of people are like, maybe we shouldn't think of Queen Anne as just this gouty, fat, crazy woman because her scorned ex-lover wrote her that way. But Sarah Churchill is essentially running the government. She is a Tory. Um, The Whigs are... Led by Nicholas Holt. Led by Nicholas Holt are jockeying for power as well. Can we talk about Mark Gaddis and his ducks? Oh, yes. This is a great movie for animals. It is. Mark Gaddis plays the Prime Minister of England. He has his duck Horatio, the fastest duck in the city. Yes. Or is this post? Yeah, this might have been post Act of Union. So I think she's the Queen of the United Kingdom now. You may be right. It's right around that window. Right. So he plays the prime minister. He also is not interested in politics. In this movie, the only people that care about politics are Sarah Churchill and her husband. And Nicholas Holt. And Nicholas Holt, who also is incredible in this movie. He's great. Everyone's great in this movie. Uh, Especially Horatio, the fastest duck in the city. Yeah. There's a duck racing scene. There's a scene where people are just throwing fruit at a naked fat man with a pink powdered wig for no apparent reason. Speaking of leisure time that we've been talking about. Oh, yeah. This movie gives a great vision of what leisure time looks like in the early 18th century. Yeah, in the royal court. With, like, clowns and animal races and stuff like that. Dancing. Weird dancing with Sarah and... I don't remember his name. It's Rachel Weisz. Joe Alwyn. Taylor Swift's boyfriend. Um... (laughs) That's what I know him as. He's been in movies before. I know, but now when you... He was in two different English nobility movies, because he's also in Mary, Queen of Scots. Yeah, but if you Google him now, it just says Taylor Swift's boyfriend. Um, I mean, fair. Yeah. So, that's kind of the situation at the beginning. Horatio's the fastest duck in the city. Luckily, that stays the same. This podcast is also a duck fan podcast. Yeah. You know who the best duck is? Oh my gosh! I just remembered I have incredible news. Um... Can we finish the favorite first? Fine. We've just gotten to the actual plot. I've been sitting on this for days. At the beginning, Sarah Churchill's distantly related cousin Abigail shows up, having been sold into essentially indentured servitude by her father in a card game. She now works at the palace because Sarah Churchill gives her a job. She then becomes Sarah Churchill's 
personal assistant, watches the Queen and Sarah Churchill engage in an intimate moment. They get it on! Hatches a plan to then use her authority to become the favorite of the Queen and takes over a lot of the jobs of Sarah Churchill. They're scheming. She is a essentially a commoner at this point, but marries into a wealthy family. There's machinations. There's a bathtub full of mud. Emma Stone giving Joe Alwyn a handjob in this movie is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie. That is one of the best scenes ever. She she's is... just like sitting there talking about her political plans on her wedding night and Joe Alwyn is kind of put out so she's like fine. And it's like he's out of the screen and we just have her jerking. Yeah, you just see her arm moving up and down as she's sitting talking to herself planning her next moves. It's excellent. Also her snort in the scene at her wedding. If you've seen the trailer, you've seen it. It's yeah, great. it's so well done. This movie rules. So, where do you want to rate it? Well, here's the thing. It is wild fun. But it is not a believable romance. No. Because one of the ways Abigail gets into power is by smashing in her face with a book. And then there's also the rabbits, which are the rabbits. interesting. It's a great movie, but I think it's probably like a five. Yeah, that seems about right. Yeah. I'm good with that. Definitely watch it if you haven't seen it. Olivia Coleman is one of the greatest actors alive. Seek out anything she's ever done because everything I've watched her in has been great. Okay. I have news. Yes. As you may know, the last couple of weeks have been the Television Critics Association's Winter Press Tour. When all the different networks and streaming platforms get together in Los Angeles and they present their slate of TV shows to critics to be like, here's what we got coming up. Write about it. Love this show. You're familiar with the concept. Yes. At Hulu's presentation. Oh, God. A couple days ago. Oh, no. They made an announcement. Dear God, now. They are going to be producing a series of animated shows. One is about Hitmonkey, a monkey who is trained as a hitman. One is about Modok, the massive organism designed only for killing. He's basically a giant head on a floating robot chair. One is a team up between Tigra and Dazzler. Tigra kind of looks like a cheetah lady, and Dazzler is an X-Men character who's also a disco singer, and she can turn sound into, like, light energy to throw at people. She's very cool. Seems like you're kind of gal. Mm-hmm. And the fourth of these shows, my dear friend, is an adult-oriented animated series coming to Hulu about our main man, Howard the Duck. Oh, God. Committing right now, when this comes out, we will do a special episode on the show. I mean, obviously we will, but this I show, hate course, it already. Started out as a Howard the Duck fan podcast. No, it started out as a Sandra Bullock fan podcast. We're going to return to our roots and give you all that Howard the Duck content, that duck tent, that duck love, hashtag we love the love, hashtag we love the ducks, hashtag we duck the ducks. Nope, that one sounds weird. <laughs> Nonetheless, animated Howard the Duck, here for it, super excited. Give it to me as soon as possible. All right. I Let's sat on move this for on. Days. Let's move on. I'm so excited. Call him Howard the Duck. All right. Movie number five. William. Okay, we're talking about Green Book. Tell me what you're trying to say. I don't know. Yeah, I miss her. Then say that, but do it in a manner that no one else has ever done it before. The movie that might win, which is insane. Or at the very least, it won Best Picture in 1991. Yeah. That's no, kind of what it feels like. Because 1991 was the year of Silence of the Lambs. Oh, that's true. A significantly better film. So Green Book is fine. It's fine. It's this year's Darkest Hour. Darkest mov- Hour is better than this movie. Yes, it is. 
But in terms of, like, how I feel about it, it's a based on a historical story that is absolutely just fine and doesn't rise above that level in any way. I think one of the challenges for the historicity of Green Book, other people have said this before, so this is not necessarily my original idea, is that the movie is written in part by the son of Tony Vallelonga. It's written by Nick Vallelonga. So Viggo Mortensen is playing his dad in the movie. And Nick Vallelonga has talked a lot about, like, this is my dad's story. I'm excited to see his story told. Which creates two problems. One, it means that the movie is about the white guy, which is obvious because we begin and end there. Right. And he is the less interesting character in a lot of ways than Mahershala Ali's character as Doc Shirley. Yeah, a, like, actually interesting character. The second problem this creates is we're told over and over and over again in the movie that Tony Vallelonga is a liar. Right. And so what we're told over and over again is he's a liar, but believe this one story. Right. a little bit of a problem. Yes. It also, I think, struggles with the fact that it's a similar problem, I think, that from what I've read, Bohemian Rhapsody has a problem with. Where Green Book is a story being told by someone who has a stake in the story. Where you get the sense that, like, this is an important foundational myth in the Vallelonga family about how they became not racist. And so this matters to them a lot. And so Nick Vallelonga, when he's writing this script, has a real stake in how it's told. Similarly, Bohemian Rhapsody, if you pay attention in the credits, these surviving members of Queen are all producers on the movie. They have a vested interest in how Queen is portrayed in the movie. And so you see scenes in Bohemian Rhapsody where the movie kind of goes out of its way to show, like, those guys are here right now. Or those guys came up with that song. And I feel that a lot in Green Book. Right. So anyway, Green Book tells the story of Mahershala Ali... He plays Doc Shirley, a black pianist in the 1960s who's going to be going on a tour of the Deep South. He needs a driver slash bodyguard, and he hires Nick Vallelonga, played by Viggo Mortensen. Over the course of the movie, we're supposed to see how their original tension blossoms into a great friendship. The reason this doesn't work for me is because the beginning of the movie shows Viggo Mortensen, well, not him, but uh, Tony Vallelonga, Tony Lip. To be a very particular kind of virulent racist. Yeah, really bad. He is a man who, when he comes into his home and he sees that there are two black handymen working around the house and that his wife has given them water to drink, Tony Vallelonga takes the glasses they drank from and throws them in the garbage because he will not allow them to be used once they have been used by black men. Yeah, that's real bad. At no point does the movie convince me that that person significantly improves as a person. I believe that they get to a point where they get along a little bit, where they can tolerate each other as professionals. Right. But at no point am I convinced of this, like, warm, welcoming, kind of huggy relationship the movie wants to sell me on at the end. Yeah. It's also an issue in some ways. This idea comes from a pop culture happy hour episode on this that I think is really good, that it gets at the difference between, like, getting along with one person and systemic racism. Yes. We see Tony Vallelonga get to a point where he can get along with one person. We have no reason to believe that the horrifying levels of ingrained racism have shifted really at all. It was crazy to me that they did that in the beginning because it got me to the point where I was like, I refuse to believe that this man will ever accept the humanity of black people. It's such a strong statement right out of the gate. But the movie also wants you to be like, hey, I'm a fun guy. We're uh, cracking some jokes and eating some chicken. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And he makes broad generalizations all the way through to the end. The movie likes Tony too much to really interrogate his racism. Yeah. It does nothing to address, like, what 
systemic racism in New York would have been like at the time. It tries to show like, oh, this is what the South was like, but they don't really go into the fact that Don Shirley still would have suffered a lot in New York. They allude to it at one point when Shirley makes a reference like, really, would I be welcome in your neighborhood any more than I am in these towns in the South? And Tony's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. But at the same time, we have this juxtaposition where there's the time when they're in the South driving and they get pulled over. And the cop is giving him a hard time. And then at the end of the movie, they get pulled over too. But now they're in the north, so the cop is just friendly. Yeah, it's... I did not care for this film. Uh, there's barely any romance. I guess the most would be Tony Lip is married. And he writes Don letters Shirley to his wife. helps him write letters to his wife. It's a real Cyrano situation. Yeah. That's you... kind of a cute vibe. Yeah, it's cute to see, like, her read it with all of her friends. And, and... her friends are all jealous of, like, the nice letters she's writing. Yeah. And then at the end, he writes one by himself, and it's nice. Yeah. He learns how to be nice. Aww. But not how to not be a virulent <laughs> racist. Yes. Where do you want to rate this? I don't know. It's like, yeah, they're married. And we're just doing their marriage. <laughs> Seems pretty good. Yeah. I guess the only problem is his own ridiculousness, where, like, you know... He'll go into a hot dog eating contest to make money. Yeah, and it seems like they never actually interact in their life because he gets home as she gets up. Yeah. And goes to bed. That's part of He works at the Copacabana, right. so he has a night job. Yeah. So it seems like that old, I don't know where it's from, but there's like a story of a man and a woman who their only interaction is when they leave a note to each other when she goes to work in the morning and he goes to work at night and they have a great marriage. It's a joke from some TV show, and it's about how that's the only way Boo. to live a good, have a good marriage. Where do you want to rate this? It's probably like a seven or an eight. Yeah, let's just give it an eight. Sure. And move on to, again, a much better film. Woo! There are three all-star movies in this list. We've hit one of them already. We're about to do the other two in a row. Yes. The next film is a November release. It premiered at Venice in August. And it is Alfonso Cuarón's film, Roma. Yay. It's on Netflix right now. It is. You can watch this before the Oscars. This movie has a real shot and is great. I think this might be what I hope wins. Mostly because I think it has the best chance of beating Green Book. It just won the BAFTA. Yeah. It's really good. So Roma is the name of a upper middle class neighborhood in Mexico City, as I learned when I was left the film and was like, well, they never explained why it's called Roma. I thought it was because it's Amor backwards. Yeah. So I Googled it, and it's a neighborhood where a family lives. The father of this family is a doctor. A deadbeat so, doctor. So they are well off. He leaves the family pretty early in the film. He's, like, allegedly going on these work trips, but really he's going to hang out with other people who are more fun than his family. Yeah, but the movie is actually about their domestic helper, Cleo, who is an indigenous woman from a small village that came to the city and lives with them, 
works for them. I think it's her sister, I want to say, that also works for the family. I think it's like a cousin or something. Yeah. And so she cooks for them, cleans for them, takes care of them in every way. But what's really interesting about this film is when you see stories like this, it's usually stuff like The Help, where they're mistreated and things are weird. And there are racial and class elements because she's an indigenous woman. And this is a Mexican family, probably of white descent, mostly. And that really does play into it, but they treat her really well and think of her as part of the family. Except that, in a lot of ways, this is a movie about who has the freedom to do what they want. Right. And in the first half of the movie, it's very much a gendered difference. Yes. Where, for example, the father is able to leave and, like, have his fun life with his mistress and, like, be laughing through the city. Whereas the women have to do the work of staying home and taking care of the family. Right. And so we have this gendered split. Similarly, you have Cleo's three- boyfriend, Fermin decides that it's more important for him to be part of his paramilitary organization than to be with her and to take care of her after she gets pregnant. Right. The men have the freedom to go and do what they want. But then in the second half of the movie, we see this same divide happening along a class barrier. Mm -hmm. Where as much as Cleo is sometimes thought of as part of the family, she is still restricted in the ways that she's able to engage. She goes on vacation with the mother, played by Marina de Tavira, and the kids, and de Tavira's character is like, Okay, like, if she's going on the trip with us, she's there as a guest. She's not there working. And they do that for the duration of the trip. When they get back, they're talking about how Cleo saved the kids' lives in the ocean and then immediately flip the switch to go get me a smoothie. Yeah. That there are these boundaries that nobody quite gets to cross. And as much as, like, Clea has this moment of being united with them on the beach... She is still separated by class in this very particular way, just as she was separated by gender in the independence yeah. that she had. And there is a race element to it, too. Oh, absolutely. It's not just the class element. And it was very well shot, as is probably the best known thing about this movie. And shot by Alfonso Coron, who right. also directed it, and, and I believe co-wrote it. Yeah. So I think he was he's nominated for director and cinematography. And then is there writing for this? yeah he also is up for best original screenplay i'm so happy that both cleo and sophia got oscar nominations i like marina de tavira's performance a lot yeah i keep my own spreadsheet of what i would nominate if i were in charge of the oscars yeah and she was one that i had in supporting actor as one where i was like i would be very pleased with this but it will never happen and then it did yeah i was really happy and yalitza aparicio is so good in this movie yeah she's great she was not previously an actor, Yeah, does a terrific work. I was listening to an interview with Quaron recently, and he was talking about the ocean scene. And he was talking about how, like, yeah, you know, by the time we were shooting that, Yalizia had been an actor for long enough that she was like, I could do this stunt stuff myself. And we had to reel her back in, like, you have to do with every dumb actor. <laughs> uh, Quaron this- seems like a really cool dude. Yeah, this is and a really cool movie. He's probably going to continue the Mexican streak at the Oscars. Yeah. Would it be the first foreign language film to win Best Picture? No, but I think it'd be the first in about 40 years. Yeah, which would be super cool. For those of you who don't know, Mexican directors have won four of the last five awards. Yes, but it's only... Including Cuaron for Gravity. But it's only three people. Right. It's Cuaron, Iñárritu won it twice, and And, Del Toro last year. Right. So it's very much a strong history of cinema in Mexico. Oh, yeah. And for some reason, in the past, like, five years, it's really kicked into high gear in crossover. Well, these guys have all been making movies that have played pretty well in the U.S. for a while. Alfonso Cuaron made a Harry Potter movie. He did. And um, he did Itumama Tambien, right? Which also played well in the U.S., And Children of Men. And Children of Men. Gravity, of course. 
So he's long been, you know. He's a cool dude. In the U.S. He's great. He lives in London now, according to Wikipedia. Oh, interesting. Which is strange. All right, so where do we want to rate the romance of Roma? Oh, I guess we should talk about the romance. Oh, yeah. So Uh, Cleo's dating this guy, Fermin. Who is the brother or cousin of the boyfriend of her sister or cousin that also works for the family. Right. There are some moments in this movie where we see glimpses into Cleo's life outside the house, which I always really enjoy. Yeah. Where she and her friend are like at a taqueria and the dudes show up. Lovely touch that shows us who Fermin is, is they're going to be going to see a movie then. And they get up to leave, and Fermin dodges in and kills the rest of her coke. Yeah, chugs all the coke she left. So they date for a while. They have sex. She tells him... There is a truly incredible scene uh, after they have sex. Yeah, there's a, a scene where she is, like, in the trailer for this movie, you get the shot of her sitting in bed, kind of, like, half-smiling. But what she's half-smiling at is a fully naked Fermin doing martial arts with a curtain rod... Well, there and, are two curtain rods in that shot, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and you see everything, and it goes on for a while, and it's just insane and incredible. It's so funny, and it's so long. Yeah, and it's played for laughs. It's so great. But then she gets pregnant, and she tells him... During the movie. During the movie, movie that she's pregnant. By the way, that movie theater looks amazing. It, yeah. It's like a big old school Grand, movie theater. Yeah, movie palace. And he kisses her and says he'll be with her. And he's then going to the bathroom. He's going to the bathroom and he is gone. Unsurprisingly, just gone. She tells her family, is worried that they're going to fire her, but they actually take care of her. They take her to the hospital where the dad works. They eventually track Fermin down. Yeah. Where he's practicing with his paramilitary organization. Yeah, and he threatens to kill her if she talks to him again. And the last time they see each other is during the Corpus Christi Massacre in Mexico City, she is in a furniture store shopping for a crib when the riot breaks out. And as people are dying and being attacked all over the place, some people rush into the furniture store for protection. And then some of the paramilitary guys run in after, including Fermin. Who points a gun at her and the grandmother of the family. He doesn't shoot. Doesn't shoot, makes significant eye contact, and runs away. And the stress of this whole scenario induces labor and cleo has a miscarriage stillborn right and that's when you find out they're officially divorcing and that's when the family goes on vacation and it's very sad i cried a lot this movie's so good this movie was great i was listening that same interview i listened to with carl and he was talking about having seen a photo of the corpus christi massacre when he was a kid and noticing that furniture store above the square and thinking as a little kid like i probably wouldn't be in the street But I could have been in that store, like, watching. Like, what would that have been like? And so they went to tour around the space where that furniture store is so they could get a sense of what it looked like. Now it's a gym, and they decided that they actually wanted to shoot in it. So they had to get the gym equipment all moved out and then fill it with furniture. This movie is great. It's so good. Uh, Where would you rate it? Probably very high. Yeah, it's very believable. I, I don't know what would bring it down for me. I mean, maybe the aggressiveness of him turning on her and threatening to kill her but he's also in a pair i thought you were gonna say the aggressiveness of him doing the martial arts naked uh that too so nine yeah probably a nine excellent great film would recommend next on the list a star is born hey what i just want to take another look at you what a movie what a film Um, in this movie chris christopherson plays a (laughs) singer (laughs) 
who is a super intense alcoholic. He goes to a club where he sees Barbara Streisand singing in the Oreos, a musical group in which she is a white lady singing between two black ladies. Remember when that happened in the 1976 version? That movie was so bad. And this year's version is so good. I think we both enjoyed this year's version more because we'd seen the 1976 version. Because it was watching that movie where they made every decision correctly. Exactly. This is the story of Jackson Maine, played by Bradley Cooper, who is a, like, kind of roots rock singer. And he's heavily into drugs and alcohol. But one night after a show, he stumbles into this bar, a drag bar, where he sees a performance by Allie, played by Lady Gaga. Or as her placard at the Venice Film Festival said, El Gaga. Uh, in this bar, also, Shangela and Willem from RuPaul's Drag Race are there, both giving amazing performances yeah. as themselves. This movie rules. Yeah. So, Cooper and Gaga have this kind of whirlwind night where they go to a couple bars together. They wind up sitting in a parking lot outside a convenience store. She punched a cop, and he's helping her hand. Right, and then she writes a song about him that becomes shallow. And next thing you know, he's whisked her off to one of his concerts. They perform on stage, and it becomes this ever-expanding melodrama where she gets her own musical career out of it and is rising up. Meanwhile, he is struggling more and more with his drug addiction. Ultimately, he completely passes out from drugs and alcohol at the Grammys as she's winning her Grammy for Best New Artist. And so he has to go into rehab. She tries to slow down her career so she can take care of him because at this point they're married. And in the end, worried that he is dragging her down, Jack commits suicide in his garage. And we're even told that he tried to commit suicide when he was only 13. Right, we heard that when he was in rehab. And I cried a lot watching this movie. This movie is so good. This movie is incredible. Every performance is perfect. I want to give a shout out to the Georgetown AMC for never giving up on this movie. Sam Elliott turning over his shoulder gives a better performance than most actors have given in their life. He also has a really lovely speech that's like kind of the movie lampshading that this is, depending on how you count, the fourth or fifth version of it. Yeah. Where he talks about, in a musical sense, like there's 12 notes and... We just keep playing the same 12 notes over and over again, but it's how you tell it. And like, darned if this isn't a great way to tell this story. Yeah. The music rocks. The performances are all terrific. And it's just so captivating in so many ways. And really, the best moment in the entire movie, a lot of people talk about the shallow performance, which is awesome. I think shallow in the parking lot is really great too. Yeah. The most devastating move in the entire movie is when Gaga is singing the last song. And it cuts back to her and Cooper at the piano. Oh, that moment. And it's just agonizing. I'm getting chills. It's so, so incredible. Bradley Cooper is the only best actor playing an original character, not based off of a real human. Yeah, I mean, the Academy has been leaning towards playing real people, especially in best actor recently. Yeah. Which is, of course, a travesty because we all know the true best actor of last year was Ethan Hawke in First Reformed. Best actress, Tony Collette, Hereditary. I'm feeling the snubs. We'll get to the snubs. Yeah. All right. So, Stars Born is great. I think that, I mean, the romance is... It's lowish. It's supposed to be elevated beyond reality in a way, purposefully. It is sweeping high Hollywood. So, because of that, it's going to get ranked lower, but that's not a bad thing. Exactly. The rankings are not always reflective of, like, the quality of the They're romance. They're never a ranking of the quality of the romance. I mean, sometimes they are. A little bit. 
uh, Howard the Duck is very low. I really think I would rate Howard higher if we watched it today. I do not. I think we didn't have enough frame of reference. I think that you want to love that movie. I think if you rewatched it, you would be reminded that you hate it. I truly believe that you are romanticizing it in your head because you really want to be the guy that likes that movie. But I don't want to be the guy that likes that movie. pained through that whole movie. I like making jokes about it. Here's the problem is like, the Dark Elder of the Universe stuff is such a slog. Yeah. That's the problem. If it was just Howard bopping around Cleveland, I'd be more into it. Oh, the villain of the Howard the Duck TV series is going to be Dr. Bong. The guy with a giant bell for a head and a clapper for an arm. Amazing. So I think my rating for Stars Born to get back on track is probably... Back on quack? Nope. Probably like a six. I think I'm a five. Yeah. It's low. They it's they run into each other at a drag bar and are married within like we don't know how long but probably the months. Uncl- the movie's unclear on what its time frame is. I think it takes place over at least a year and a half. Yeah, when I think so too. Because the the album recording cycle plus his rehab cycle. Yeah, it's a long time, but it's still very whirlwind. Right. Which is kind of deliberate. We're supposed yeah. to, especially in the first half, feel the whirlwind nature of it all. And then in the second half, it is less all-encompassing because it is them then feeling less wrapped up in it and having to navigate it afterwards. Right. The movie makes you feel what they are feeling throughout the movie. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. Now, onto a much less great movie. Let's talk about Vice. Uh, the Vice Presidency is mostly a um, symbolic job. Right, right. I can see how that wouldn't be... Uh, enticing to you. However, the vice presidency is also defined by the president. If we were to come to a uh, different understanding. Yeah. Few movies made me angrier. Yeah, this one really rankled Will. And I think that if I had stayed and watched the mid credit scene instead of having to run out and pee like I usually do after movies, I would be madder than I was. Vice is a movie directed by Adam McKay, written by McKay as well. It's his follow-up to The Big Short, a movie that I like a lot, about the life of Dick Cheney, the former vice president of the United States. This is a movie that thinks it is brilliant. Yes. It thinks it has a million cogent, probing, hard-hitting things to say, but in fact says nothing except that Adam McKay is full of crap. Yeah. That's, I say this as no fan of Dick Cheney's. That's the biggest problem with this movie is how good it thinks it is. Right. And that's hard because I think some of the performances in it are darn good. I think Christian Bale does a really good job. I think Amy Adams also does a really good job. Right. But the movie itself keeps jumping around and I think it doesn't respect its audience at all. It directs such disdain at its audience, particularly in some ways through the Jesse Plemons narrator, which doesn't really work for me. No, I didn't like it. It winds up being a very strange coda, and I don't know what it's supposed to say. I don't either. But at the same time, it's like shaming the audience. And I will say this, as someone who watches Survivor, a thing that is specifically called out in this movie, Yeah. I don't know what McKay wanted me to do differently in 2004 when I was 11. Should I have not voted for Cheney? I didn't. I couldn't vote. Yeah, 
the best call out of Survivor is in the show, The Other Two, <laughs> in which one of the main characters has a very weird relationship with his ostensibly straight roommate who will make out with him sometimes. And when he's talking about it with his sister, she just goes, he watches reruns of Survivor. That is just aggressively heterosexual. Survivor's still good. It comes back in like two weeks. I'm hyped. Yeah. But if you haven't watched the other two, check it out on Comedy Central. It's amazing. Yeah, it's good. It just got renewed. Yeah. Molly Shannon is so funny in it. So anyway, back to Vice. It also like has this problem where it throws out all these ideas but doesn't do anything with them. And then half the ideas that it's throwing out don't make any sense. So like it plays around with this unitary theory of the presidency for a bit but doesn't really go anywhere with it. It's got this Sam Rockwell performance at George W. Bush that feels like an SNL sketch. Like, the scene with him asking Cheney to be VP plays really well as a teaser trailer, but there's nothing more to it in the movie. That's no. just what it is. And so that performance is really annoying, that, like, we take one of our best and most charming actors and just throw him in this garbage. And it's just really, really frustrating to see that over and over again through this movie. And it's a movie that ultimately, like I said, has a lot of disdain for its audience, never more so than in its post credit scene which many people did not stick around for, but in which the focus group that keeps being brought into the movie with Frank Luntz, which never serves a real purpose. It goes on a tangent about the death tax for a while, and I'm still not sure why. And the focus group comes back, only now they're arguing about contemporary issues, about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and things like that. And it turns into an all-out brawl with people throwing chairs and attacking each other, except for a 20-something woman who's still sitting in her chair, and the camera goes straight to her, and she says... I can't wait for that new Fast and Furious movie. It's going to be lit. Which shows such disdain for young people. And women. And women. And frankly, just like anybody who is intelligent enough that they're able to enjoy culture and pay attention to important issues. Yeah, it really is saying you can't do both. It's so, so infuriating. I... Also, sorry, I want to throw one more thing out. Yeah. The movie is so cocky in so many ways. It is truly mind-boggling to me that Vice has the audacity to include a scene in which Christian Bale tells Steve Carell to use a light touch. That this sledgehammer of a film can look you straight in the eye and say, we're going to use a light touch. When at the same time, there's a scene where Dick Cheney says, what do we believe in? And everyone laughs at him. Give me a break. I don't like the guys. They have an agenda. If they don't believe in anything, then what are we supposed to think they did any of this for? The movie doesn't have an answer to the ludicrous propositions it throws out there. Yeah, this movie made a lot of choices. A lot of them failed. It was not a great movie. I don't know why Adam McKay is up for Best Director. He should not be. It's ludicrous that he's in there and not Bradley Cooper and not Paul Schrader. Yeah, it's... And not Pavel Pawlikowski. Oh, no, Pawlikowski is in there. Yes. Good for him. Cold War is awesome. That's a great romance. Talk about an unnominated romance. It's nominated for foreign language. That's yeah. why I didn't pick it. Ugh. It is unbelievable. That, that said, the, the Dick and Lynn Cheney relationship is really, really interesting in it. It is. That's by far the best part. Yeah, of course. It's the part with Amy Adams. Of course, it's the best part. Right. But also, like, she does a really good job kind of as, like, pushing things in the career and really being... Yeah. Because the movie decides that Dick Cheney doesn't believe in anything, that leaves Lynn Cheney to be the ideologue. Right. She's the one that actually has, you know, beliefs. It's a classic wife as the power behind the throne. Yeah. Which I'd believe. Yeah. All right. So what and also, wanna... I would also say the handling of the relationship with his daughters is also done interestingly. Yes. Because that is a, something that is interesting 
in real life. Oh, absolutely. So I think that was also a part that the movie tackled well, but very few parts other than that worked for me. Yeah. So I want to rate it. I mean, it's pretty the high. Is pretty good. Yeah. Like eight. an eight. Yeah. yeah. All right. Fine. It's also a real romance. So <laughs> it's the darkest hour problem. We do know that they stay together. True. If you had to date one person from any of these movies, who would it be? Oh, this is tough. It can be any person. You can date Andrew Dice Clay as Allie's dad. Yes, but I could also date... You could date Andy Serkis as Ulysses Claw in Black Panther. I forgot he was in that. But I could also date Allie's best friend in A Star is Born, who is very fun because he is kept around even when she's famous, which I enjoyed. Yeah, as opposed to Barbara Streisand, who had no life. <laughs> yeah, who had no... So, it was nice to see her connections to her old life sticking around. He runs a drag club. I'm into that. Um, I think I might go with him. Or cool. or Cleo. Cleo's great. I think I am going to go with Nakia from Black Panther. She's really cool. She cares about justice. And she is willing to tell people they're being dumb to their face. Did you know that Yalitza Aparicio is the first indigenous woman to be nominated for Best Actress? That doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me either, and she's only the second Mexican woman to receive a Best Actress Oscar nomination after Salma Hayek. Wow. That's insane. She's also 25. Do you know how old I am? 24. I did not know she was 25. Yeah, she was born in 1993. Well, that's unacceptable. (laughs) That makes me hate her a little bit more. Get out of here. Get me a smoothie. <laughs> okay. Um. Anything else you want to talk about? Any, Any other snubs? snubs? I've already talked. First Reformed is the best movie of last year. Hereditary is number two. Paddington 2 is number three. None of them is nominated. Annihilation wasn't nominated. Widows, Widows got eight, nothing. Eighth grade. Yeah. How did eighth grade not get best original screenplay? It's a travesty. It's insane. Adam McKay has a director nomination over Bo Burnham. Yes. And over Steve McQueen for Widows. And also over Bradley Cooper for A Star is Born. Yeah, I know. There are so many people that should have gotten that spot before Adam McKay. I'm so mad. Also, here's the deal. I am actually okay with a lot of the nominations that I think have a shot. But so help me, if Sam Rockwell wins for that cartoon of a performance, I will be deeply upset. Because Sam Rockwell is a guy I like a lot, but I don't want him to win two years in a row for movies that I'm not really on board with. I don't think he has a shot. No, I don't either. I think it's really Mahershala Ali's to lose. Yeah, and if it's anybody else, it'll be Richard E. Grant. Yeah, who I would be happy if he won, because he is really good in that movie. Yeah, and he's been campaigning hard. Yeah, that's a great movie, too. Yeah, can you ever forgive me? It picked up uh, adapted screenplay and supporting actor and best actress, maybe? Yes, Melissa McCarthy is nominated for best actress. Excellent. So it did pick up some stuff. Also, that's another director who I would have nominated over Adam McKay. Oh, sure. The list is quite long. Yeah. There's so many. I would have put James Wan for Aquaman before that. Who directed Mortal Engines? Some kind of computer simulation? Put them up there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we've covered all the movies now. Any other snubs? I mean, you know, we could do this all day. Yeah. For the most part, it's okay. Yeah, that's the thing is for the most part, the nominations are fine. Yeah, nothing to truly be mad about. I get to be a, a grump about First Reformed this year, just like I was a grump about Florida Project last year, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. I really think that things are probably going to be okay. 
Well, we did it. We did it. Happy Oscars. Happy Oscars to all. And to all, a good award season. So, looking towards next week, <laughs> I feel like we have still not nailed down whether we're doing How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, I am firmly on team hashtag the dream is dead. I think we hashtag should... work no dreams. I think we should cover this last one to see if my memory is correct and that there is one good DreamWorks movie. But do you want to be in a situation like with Madagascar where we learn that it's awful? I'm okay with it because I'm also not married to this. Like, if I found out something I actually loved as a child was bad. Wait a minute. Hang on. I have a a voicemail that we need to check. Well, why do we frequently check your voicemail during the show? Because that's when I'm on my phone. I'm not paying attention to what I'm saying. You think I listen to what I'm talking about here? I mean, I can guarantee I don't listen to what we talk about. I use it to check my voicemail. So anyway, here's this. I haven't listened to it yet, but it's something, probably, I guess. Maybe it's like a pizza man, and I didn't notice the voicemail till now. (laughs) Hey, Ma, Will, guess who? It's me. Uh, I'm calling from Square Apron. This is Tony A. Anthony, Vice President of Advertising and Marketing for Film Podcast. Listen, great show so far. Love what I'm hearing. Uh, just one brief note on one small point. Uh, the Madagascar episode had uh, little to no discussion of romance whatsoever. And overall, you seem to be expressing some reluctance to continue watching and reviewing the romances in the DreamWorks films. Let me be clear. If you were to cease doing so... It would be unfortunate. And by that, I mean the, uh, the consequences would be unfortunate consequences. Uh, I trust that in your upcoming review of How to Train Your Dragon, you will take greater notice of the beautiful love story between the two main characters. But of course, we are friends, you two and I, and friendship is not truly friendship if the involved parties do not perform surfaces. For each other. Oh. And you wish for the Academy's award for best supporting actor to go to someone other than Mr. Sam Rockwell for his betrayal of our nation's 43rd president in the Vice film. Very well. I personally enjoyed the choices he made for the role, but consider it done. He will not win the award. Best wishes and take care. I'll be in touch. I like how an advertising agent, like, introduced himself in a voicemail to you as it's me so profesh is tony anthony gonna kill sam rockwell yes he's also gonna kill us if we don't cover how to train your dragon okay here's the thing when tony anthony called us back during the meet me in st louis episode and he said he was gonna ask us to perform a service for him at some point i said should we be worried about tony anthony and you said no this man is clearly a monster well sorry i didn't want to stereotype People what? from New you York. Think all square apron execs can't be monsters? Yes, I try to avoid assuming everyone who lives in New York is evil. Um, square apron's a great company. They've never done anything wrong. There's nothing bad to say about them. We love square apron. Please don't come and, and get us. We have to do something about this. I mean, we have to cover How to Train Your Dragon. Oh, we do. Apparently, we have to keep doing the DreamWorks episodes or Tony Anthony's going to have us killed. Yep. I do not care for this. Eh, I'm fine with it. This is a threat to our lives. Yeah. Also, people can order wonderful boxes straight to their homes with all the ingredients to make a delicious website. Do you truly think this is the first threat against my life I've dealt with? How many of them were from podcast advertising executives, though? I mean, probably all of them. Well, Be Wild Body Glitter still hasn't forgiven <laughs> us for dropping that sponsorship. Yeah, they uh do not take kindly to 
our discussion of their weird products. All right. Well, I guess we're covering How to Train Your Dragon so Tony Anthony doesn't have us killed and thrown in a ditch somewhere. It has America Ferreira. Oh, yeah, it does. Get excited. All right. Well, until next week, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at love to love Pod or email us at love to love Pod at gmail.com. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice you got in a 2018 movie? I mean... You should write songs about strangers in parking lots, and then they will fall in love with you and make you a star. Um, much like Elsie Fisher in eighth grade, if you buy me fast food, I'm in. That's not even a joke. That's just Will discussing his current dating strategies. You know, if people want to give that a shot, I would not be sorry. Will, stop trying to scam people into giving you fast food. They could give me a sandwich instead. All right, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Happy Oscars! Bye!